Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word, I pray, God, that you would give us understanding. I pray, Lord, that you would be my strength and my weakness. And Lord, I pray that as we seek to close up the book of Hebrews in this series, I pray, Lord, what we've learned would ever be in front of us. And Lord, I pray we would not neglect what we have heard. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles this morning, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. This morning we are truly at the end of the book. We got verses 22 through verse 24. And uh, just very simply, I've entitled this message, Closing Words. Closing Words. And uh, I want you to see this because as we finish this up, he really hits on the necessity of remembering and listening to what they've heard. Let's read verse 22 through 24. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, Send you greetings. Grace be with you all. The first thing we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at three observations as we wrap this up. The simple observations that we can hold on to as we finish up the book of Hebrews in verses 22 through 24. And, and what we're going to do, just to give you a sense here, in these three different observations. We're going to see an appeal to receive. We're going to see an exhortation to live by, and we're going to see a grace that undergirds. The first one we're going to jump into, though, is an appeal to receive. In verse 22, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. When we look at this verse and we see the appeal, before we jump into in what sense is this an appeal, I want you to look at just a few questions with me. The first one, in what sense is he calling them brothers? When we look at the book of Hebrews, as we'll see under the second point, we've been dealing with a lot of warnings, hadn't we? Really five, some people say six key warnings in the book of Hebrews. And these warnings have been a call for the believers to endure, to walk by faith, to continue to put their faith in Christ, the great high priest. And as he's called them to endure, he calls them brothers here. Do you remember when we were looking at that warning passage, like I'll mention here in a moment, in Hebrews 6, and in the midst of all the heaviness of that warning, he says something that's very comforting. In verse 9 in Hebrews 6, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He spoke similarly when he spoke to them the comfort of verse 34, chapter 10. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
And then he says something else in the midst of these warnings, in the midst of this challenge. He says in chapter 10, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In the midst of, it's like we said, I mentioned to you going through the book, it's, it's like sort of the, the statement, if the shoe fits, wear it. And when we look at the warning passages, we see these passages as a tool and a companion to our lives as Christians as we are sanctified. God uses the warning passages in our life to help us to continue to move on. But he also calls people that are in a state of unbelief, he calls them in an evangelistic way through the warning passages to see the truth of the gospel. So we see it work in two different ways. But we see not only the fact that he regarded them as brothers in the faith, we can also think of the fact that he's writing to what we know of as his Jewish brothers. These were Jews and understood the Old Testament. And so much of the book of Hebrews deals with the technicalities of the shadows because they were tempted to go back to the shadows and miss the substance of Christ. And he writes to them, appealing to them in ways that if he were writing to a Gentile audience that didn't have familiarity with these things, they would be lost in high grass. They couldn't figure out what he was talking about. But he's writing to brothers Jewish, but he's writing to brothers in the faith. They're brothers that he counts on and that he sees the God's grace working in and gives them confidence that they're going to endure ultimately. But not only that, they're brothers, and there's a passage in the book of Hebrews that deals with Jesus as our great high priest. And notice this in Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then he says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And look at this passage in verse 17 of chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But not only in what sense are they brothers, in what sense could he now say that this was a brief exhortation? We look at verse 22, and you're thinking, man, this is definitely preacher speak here. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. If you were to read the book of Hebrews, people have said, I guess if you're a fast reader, some of us are fast readers, and we read too loud. We get excited. I've been accused of that. And you read fast, so maybe I could read this in 45 minutes out loud, but maybe if we read it in a way that could be understood... It would take closer to an hour. It's smaller than the book of Romans. It's right below 10,000 words. How can he say that this is brief? It's interesting because the depth of the subject that he is speaking about, that he is writing to these precious Christians about, it would give you a better understanding to remember some of the passages where he actually shows this could have been a lot longer. Look at Hebrews 5. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. There's a lot to say. In Hebrews 9, he says, above it, speaking of the, 
the heavenly, the tabernacle and how it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And what does he say, though, about the tabernacle? Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. This, even when he gets into the details, more in the details, you get the sense that the author is just acting like he's skimming the surface of the majesty of how these truths of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. And we see in Hebrews chapter 11, remember in the hall of faith, he says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. It's as if he's saying, if I wanted to keep going, I could fill page after page after page. So he speaks briefly, but I want you to think of another sense here as we get into this appeal. In what sense are we to bear? In verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. What, what do we mean by this? And how do we understand what the author is saying? Bear with my word. One commentator, I think, really nails it. He says, listen willingly. Have you ever noticed how when you are in a service and I, when I'm in a service hearing other people preach, it's easy when difficult topics or difficult themes are addressed. I have a tendency to think, man, I'm glad so-and-so's here today. I'm glad they're here to hear this. And, and it's like the old uh, gospel song that it's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me in the need of prayer. And when we listen to these truths, there's a temptation to avoid them. A lot of people, when they think of Hebrews, they think of the warning passages, and rather than take the obvious applications that come out of those, they tend to steer away from it. They tend to run the other way. Let somebody else examine the book of Hebrews. But he wants them to understand that they need to listen willingly. They need to listen attentively, listen willingly, listen submissively, because if they miss these truths, it has dramatic consequences on their life. We look at this and we see that this bearing, this, this exhortation, bear with it, it, it's so important. But the last question I want you to add, understand here under this first point is in what sense is this an appeal? He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, it's interesting because he uses the idea of exhortation as a verb and he uses it as a noun. It's, it's as if he says, I exhort you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. He's using the same word and he's saying, look, I encourage you, I urge you, I call you alongside to understand this. And how is this an appeal? And what I want us to think about here is that he's giving them this appeal, this, this appeal to listen to this exhortation to listen to this sermon, to listen to these truths. And one of the big questions as we move into the next point is to understand what is the exhortation? But don't miss the appeal here. This is not just a sermon on the deity and the humanity of Jesus. This is not just bullet points as to why Jesus is greater. 
than the old system of the old covenant. This is not just an understanding of, of all the shadows and the substance in Christ. This is an appeal for us today. This is an appeal to not neglect it, not forget it, to take to heart the warnings, to take to heart the challenges and the commands, and not just to hear it and hear it and process the information of it, but to hear it willingly, to hear it submissively, to be transformed by the truth of what we've learned in the book of Hebrews. And I tell you, one of the challenges in studying the Bible is, first of all, trying to identify the application for the original audience, but then connecting that application to how it connects to us today, 2,000 years later. And the same application is in place for us. He wanted these dear Hebrew Christians not just to hear these truths, not just to be amazed at the, the, just the skill in which he writes, obviously through the power of the Holy Spirit, but to be changed by it. Wouldn't it be a tragedy to go through the book of Hebrews and to come away with just a little bit more information, how Hebrews functions, how Hebrews works, and to completely miss the applications for our lives? It would be tragic. You see, when we get into the second point, we see not only that there's an appeal to receive, but we see an exhortation to live by. We got to receive it, but now he's calling us to live out of it. And, and as we think about this exhortation to live by, I want us to focus in on three different items here. The first one, as we look at this exhortation to live by, is again, focus in on what he means by exhortation. Because he's using this term exhortation, I appeal to you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. And the question we need to ask ourselves is what really is he summing up this exhortation to be? How would, he, how would we wrap it up? If somebody said, give me the exhortation of the book of Hebrews, could you begin to sum it up? I think when we look at this, we, we focus in on this exhortation. We focus in on it, but we have to not only focus in on the fact that we have to come up with what it is, but we have to understand that we have to focus on Christ. When we've looked at the book of Hebrews, we've looked at the supremacy of Jesus, how Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the tabernacle. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than any shadow that you could come up with. And you think about all of the history that these precious Jews would have had from growing up under Judaism. Every single item you can bring up that these people were, were tempted to go back to, Jesus Christ is greater. In Hebrews chapter 3, Charlie read it already, but I want us to focus in on this because we can't understand the exhortation of Hebrews if we miss this. In Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more than the house itself. 
For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But here we go. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is our great high priest. And he brings us out throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews. He brings out that this endurance is going to be marked by a walk of faith, a walk of trust in God. But we're walking in light of the fact that he is the faithful builder over the house that gives us grace to endure. But not only do we have to focus in on Christ, in order to think about the exhortation and to understand how Christ is central to everything in the book of Hebrews, we have to focus in on the warnings. We have to focus in on the commands and the verbs that are associated with those warnings. And I want us just real quickly, because you may be with us today and it's the first time you've been in the book of Hebrews and it's the last time I'm preaching out of it. So I've got to mention this to you, because if there's anything that can be misunderstood in the book of Hebrews, it's the warning passages. Real quickly, I don't have time to flesh this out, but five different observations on the warning passages. Number one, the Bible does not teach we can lose our salvation. Number two, apostasy reveals no true root in the faith. Number three, the Holy Spirit enables true believers to ultimately endure. Number four, the Holy Spirit uses warning passages as a means of sanctification in the lives of his children. Again, I asked you this before. How many of you can relate to me where you have been deceived by sin where you are playing around in an area of your life, whether you're wandering over here, neglecting God's word, neglecting the body of Christ, and you come to a warning passage, and the Holy Spirit uses the warning passage in a sanctifying way in your life and calls you to understand who you are in Christ and the responsibilities you have. Can you relate with me? God uses these warning passages, and he uses them, as one man I heard years ago say, like rails on the highway, on each side of the highway. And they keep us moving along by the grace of God, but the Holy Spirit intends to use them for our progression in the faith, to keep walking in the faith. But finally, warnings serve as a call for those on the fence to come to a true saving faith In Jesus Christ. So, with all that to be said, if we're gonna have to evaluate the warnings in the book of Hebrews, let's go through this fast. The first set of warnings, chapter two, verses one through four, dealt with the danger of drifting, the danger of drifting. And in that passage, the warning in verse three of chapter two how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? But what exhortation did he give within that passage? He says something incredible. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. I told you the story about when I was uh, in Eleuthera in the Bahamas, and I was on 
that big uh, mattress we called the Beast. It was a king-size air mattress, and we put it in the Caribbean, and we laid on it and fell asleep. And I've got two dear friends here today, Bob and Diane Vereen. It was, I was with Tommy Hamill and you two. And, uh, and me and Tommy fell asleep, and we went drifting and drifting and drifting, and we woke up. And I was like, Tommy, we are in trouble. He's like, what? I was like, look how far are we from the shore? And immediately we were like, oh, boy, we got to get back. And so we started moving back. But what he wants them to understand is be aware of the danger of drifting, the danger of drifting. And he calls these Christians to action. The second warning passage in the book of Hebrews deals with the danger of a doubting, disobedient, deceived heart. And it's found in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through verse 17. And in this passage, we see the warning. The warning here is all the way into chapter 4. And he says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. But what encouragement does he give within this warning passage? He says in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And he called them to endure. He says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. We come into the warning number two, and we see the warning against doubting, disobedient, deceived hearts, but we see an exhortation to believe, to not be hardened, to exhort one another, to endure. The third warning takes place. Before we get to the third one, I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you being deceived by the deceitfulness of sin? I'll tell you, are you responding to God's word with faith? Or are you deceived and disobedient? We have to see the danger here. We have to see the call in the book of Hebrews to respond to God's word and receive it with belief and not like those that were hardened with a disobedient, apathetic attitude towards the word of God. The third warning in the book of Hebrews is really in one unit of thought. It's in chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 20. It's like one paragraph. And when we look at that unit of thought there, what we see is he's warning them. And we see that this danger, when we looked at Hebrews chapter 6, he seems to be explaining those who had such close proximity to the things of God, yet they weren't truly rooted in the faith. And he said in chapter 6, verse 3 and verse 4, he says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. There were people in danger of literally expressing and exposing and manifesting the reality that they had never experienced a true root in Christ. We've looked at the parable of the soils. And we looked at what Jesus said about the seed that was thrown out on the ground. And there was only one good soil. 
And yet so many people think that close proximity to church, close proximity to the things of God gives them ultimate assurance. And the author of Hebrews is calling them to understand that the grace of the Holy Spirit not only enables us to endure, but calls us not to live apathetic, but calls us to live out of the joy of abiding in Christ. And look what he does at the beginning to encourage them in the midst of this warning. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. I don't know about you, but when I hit sixth grade, I couldn't wait to get out of sixth grade. I was ready for the big time, seventh grade. I was ready to rock and roll at Grace Academy in Chattanooga, and they will never forget my seventh grade class. It was, <laughs> that was uh, not in a good way, maybe, but I was excited to get to seventh grade, but I was ready to get out of elementary. And what is he calling these Christians to understand? Don't live as if you're in elementary forever. The things of God call us to move forward. I wonder this morning if we could uh, see through the discernment of the Holy Spirit of God whether or not we're living in elementary. Maybe today you're here and you're living in pre-K. You're living in Mother's Day out Christianity. And the book of Hebrews is calling you to understand the serious nature of moving forward in the things of the great high priest. I'd say, how sad would it be if we moved out of the book of Hebrews and we didn't understand the call and how the Holy Spirit is compelling us? Remember we talked about at the very beginning? And he gives like this, you know, the theologians, they give all these fancy words that it takes everyone forever to learn. But one of them is Christology. It's the view of who Christ is. And remember we talked about if you have a low Christology, it affects everything in your Christian life. Low Christology in today's vernacular means progressive Christianity. It means falling off inerrancy, falling off the slide of sufficiency of Scripture. But a high Christology begins to help us to understand the things of God. And a high Christology calls us to go on in maturity with Christ. We get into the fourth warning. The fourth warning is the danger of despising. The danger of despising. He starts out with this exhortation in chapter 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And in this warning, the fourth warning, he moves all the way from chapter 10, verse 19 through verse 39. And there, when he gets into verse 26, he gives the warning very clear. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
And again, I mentioned it to you earlier. Don't get sideways here. He's not speaking about faith that you can lose. He's speaking about the reality of no root faith. But I tell you, what we have to do when we come to these passages is not look at our brother, not look at our friend, not look at someone in the back that hadn't been here in a while, but no, you say, God, what do you want to reveal to me in this text? And how do you want to spur me on to godliness and righteousness? We misunderstand the warning passages completely if we don't have a prayerful heart of, oh God, would you guide me in your truth? The final warning in the book of Hebrews. So we get to the, the end of the, that fourth warning, the danger of despising him, the danger of falling into the hands of a living God. But then we get into warning five, and the warning five is the danger of denying him, the danger of devaluing the grace of God. And that warning is clear when we get into Hebrews 12, 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This is serious, serious stuff. And what he says in, earlier in the exhortation of this warning, he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And then he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And he keeps going. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So these warnings give us the heart of the exhortation, because within each warning, he gives them critical exhortations of godliness to live and walk with Christ. This morning, we see not only an appeal to receive, we not only see exhortations to live by, but finally this morning, we see a grace that undergirds. A grace that undergirds. Look at verse 23. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. It's sort of like what we looked at last time when we looked at that benediction in verse 20 and 21 and how it dealt with the resurrection of Jesus. And we backed up and we're like, wait a minute, how does the resurrection of Christ how is it essential for everything? And we talked about the ramifications are endless. You can't have true worship. You can't have true prayer. You can't have anything of substance without the resurrection of Jesus. And just like this one, grace is, without grace, we have no Christian life because the grace of Jesus Christ is linked to his resurrection power. And the first thing that hit me here is that you have like a grace that unites and you have a grace that unites the family of God. Because when you think about the word undergird, right, a grace that undergirds, have you ever thought of a word and you're thinking, I don't even know what that word means, but I think it's useful here. And I had to look it up. It was safe. The, uh, it's to provide support or a firm basis, to provide support or a firm basis 
The grace of God supports all of our Christian lives. It not only supports us, it enables us, but it unites us. And notice all of the people that before Christ they would have had no community with. Notice this. This is fun. He mentions Timothy. Timothy here, it appears, is in prison. He says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released. I tell you, that, that ought to encourage people that are tempted to go back to Judaism, people that have had their property plundered, people that are tempted or to think that they're going to face martyrdom, which could have been one of the outcomes of walking with Christ in this world. And yet he tells them, Timothy's been released. It's almost like, hey, Timothy's enduring. Look at Timothy. Remember him. But what else? He got Timothy. And then he says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. I love this. We're going to mention saints on the next point, but greet all your leaders, these leaders in the Christian church. Remember last time we talked about in Ephesians 4, the gifts that he gave to men, he gave gifted men to the church. And the gifted men of the church, they were just an extension of his grace. These weren't super communicators. These weren't people that had a lot to offer, therefore God called them so they could help him out. No, these were people that God in their foolishness displayed his wisdom. And it was all by the grace of God. Timothy now had a connection with these dear Christians. Not only that, but the leaders now had a connection with Timothy. And then he mentions in all the saints, and the good news that we've learned before is that, you know, our, many of our, uh, many people in today's world, you know, if you, if you go, if you're in Roman Catholicism, they teach you that the only way you can be a saint is if they can document miracles and if you've got a statue, you know, right? But that's not the way sainthood works. He says in all the saints, and he's not speaking about the superheroes in the Christian church. He's speaking about all of those people who once were alienated in their sin and enemies of God who now had been reconciled to God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now they were saints in the church. Do you realize this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a saint? You're a saint because of your identity now in Christ Jesus? That's, that's incredible, incredible truths. But notice this, Timothy, the leaders, the saints, and then he throws in those who come from Italy send you greetings. We don't know exactly what he's doing here. Many people, my best guess is that he's writing to Jewish Christians who are in Rome. And there was a, a persecution that took place in Rome under the emperor Claudius in 49 AD. And many of the Jewish people got spread out all over the place. We don't know for sure if this is what's happening here, but it's interesting regardless of who they are, whether they're people from Rome that are now with the author or whether it's different, I want you to see something here. There's a grace that unites all those in faith in Christ. A grace that makes us family. But not only is there a grace that unites, there's a grace that saves. When we think about that word saint, I want you to see, you might be with us in and today, and, and, and this has never really come all the way to your heart, but I want you to see that the reason these people are saints is because now they've received the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Their account was in default, but there was a transfer of accounts, and the righteousness of Christ was credited to their account. 
And now, like Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Not only is there a grace that unites us, there's a grace that saves us. This morning, I pray that if one thing has hit your heart through the study of the book of Hebrews is to see the foolishness of a view that says that we can work our way to God. A view that says we can work our way to God needs no great high priest. What did we learn about the high priest? He's our advocate. He's our mediator. He's our substitute. But it's just like Galatians says, that that if, if grace, if, if we can merit our life and our way before God through the law, then Christ died needlessly. But the book of Hebrews is showing us that only Jesus can save us. He's the only one that can sustain us. He's the only one that can supply us. He's the only one that can strengthen us. So we see a grace that unites, a grace that saves. But finally here, I want you to see this. This last greeting in verse 25, a lot of times when we're walking around, we have ways we just say certain things, you know, how's it going? What's up? How are you doing? We got these common things we say to people we don't know from anybody. I'll be walking through Walmart and I talk to everybody and, and I'll say the same thing to most of them. But it's funny, sometimes when you're with little kids all the time, um, I saw this one really tough guy one day. I was walking through Walmart, and I said, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> and I was like, whoa, I've been with uh, my little ones too much. It was just funny. It, it, he looked at me sort of funny. He looked at me cross-eyed. But, uh, but anyway, a grace that strengthens. This is not just a phrase that Paul throws out like we use common phrases. But he speaks here about a grace. He says, grace be with all of you. He's used this throughout the book of Hebrews, but it's all over the New Testament. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You remember, grace is something that is so powerful. Did you know it's like uh, you can't see, you know, we always say you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. Well, you can't see grace technically, but you can see the effects of grace when he came and saw the grace of God in the book of Acts. The grace of God is God's power working through people. And it's not just a concept, it's a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his power revealed in the working through sinners that are now saved in him. Remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. We learn in 1 Peter by Sylvanius, the faithful brothers, I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And we get to the book of Hebrews, and let's look at some of this grace as we close out the letter. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you realize this morning you need grace for everything you do as a Christian? You need grace to be kind, grace to get out of bed, grace to pray, grace for marriage, grace to teenager, whatever that means, grace to work hard, grace to turn the other cheek, grace to serve, grace to deny temptation, grace to die to self, grace to give Grace to put others before yourselves. 
You need grace for everything in your Christian life. And he closes out this letter, and he's just mentioned in verses 20 and 21 that God equips us to do his will through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the good news this morning, you may be thinking, how can we endure? How can we finish this course? How can we keep going? If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times in this study. It's easy, isn't it, to watch the news and be like, oh, no, what are we going to do? There's not going to be any food. There's not going to be anything. Look at politics. Look at, look at this. Look at that. Look at this. Look at that. How are we going to endure in a world that's lost its mind through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you, if you want to get comforted in your faith, just look back to all the Christians that have come before you. And do you realize they're Christians that experience suffering? They're Christians that experience persecution? And how did they endure? Because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need. God's grace is not just unmerited favor. We need unmerited favor if we're ever going to stand and we're ever going to be pleasing in his sight. Don't get me wrong, but God's grace gets better and better and better. It's like watching the waves hit the shore. Grace upon grace. It's like wave after wave after wave because the grace that is unmerited favor is grace that's transforming power. This morning, every one of the challenges and exhortations we looked at earlier in each one of those warning passages, you know the only way that you can live out of it and that you can follow it faithfully? It's not because you learn how to be better. It's not because you work harder. Yes, you labor, but you only labor according to the grace of God that works in you. His power works in us. His power enables us to endure. I saw a dear friend of my dad's um, was running a, he turned 65, and he was running a half marathon. And he had all these posts on Facebook. And, you know, he was like, man, y'all pray for me. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And and, uh, he endured. He endured. He made it. He, he, he got pictures at the end to prove it. And, and I want you to think about this as we close. How can you finish faithfully? How can you walk in the commands of Jesus Christ? How can you live growing in maturity? It's only through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection power. And friend, if you're here today and you're thinking that what God desires of you is for you to be religious or for you to work harder, to be a good person, you completely misunderstand the book of Hebrews. This morning, you need a great high priest. You need one who can stand in your place. And the Lord Jesus Christ not only stood in your place, but he brings salvation to all those who call on his name. Today, believe on Christ. Look to Jesus. And Christian, understand as we leave the book of Hebrews, we can't forget what we've learned. An appeal to receive, exhortations to live by, a grace that undergirds. Would you bow your head?
Lord, I thank you for how you've guided us through this book all the way back from the end of January of last year. And Lord, I thank you, God, that we have learned so much about the supremacy of Jesus. But oh God, I pray that Lord, we would not move on as if we put it behind us. I pray the truths that we learned in this wonderful book, we would meditate on, we would continuously grow out of, and Lord, it would become a true, definite part of our day-to-day walk with Christ, with you, Lord, and your precious son who died for our sin. And Lord, we thank you that it's, it's only through the power of your Holy Spirit working in us that we can continue to endure, continue to persevere. I pray, Lord, as we have gone through this letter that, God, we would never forget the importance of your church. Lord, that we would never forget that we are not a part of sanctification apart from your called community. And Lord, I pray that we would not neglect one another, but God, we would love each other, seeking to point each one to the truths that we have learned in this book. God, thank you. I pray as we close, Lord, that your spirit would work. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.